Okay, uh, welcome to the AIDS seminar for March, March 14th. Uh, so for your activity code for this seminar for uh, CME and nursing is 6ZAK. So you need to know that. Um, so today's seminar is an update from the recent Croy uh, in Boston. And um, the, uh, there's no commercial support for this uh, seminar. I have to uh, state a few required things uh, for continuing education. First, I have to attend at least 80% of the program in order to receive credits. Uh, planning committee member Brian Marsh is a consultant for Gilead Biosciences. Uh, and uh, he has no other conflict of interest. Uh, faculty members, uh, uh, Paul Palumbo is a consultant for Merck and has other financial interests in DSMD for Gilead and April Pharma. And that's yes. Uh, so um, Brian is going to introduce okay. the speaker. Great. So um, we have three speakers today. Um, we were going to have four or five, but we constrained it. Um, so Jeff Parsonet, Paul Plumbo is going to go first. Paul's going to talk on a couple of pediatric issues, not surprisingly. Jeff's going to talk about metabolic issues, primarily focused on bone disease and HIV. And I'm going to talk uh, almost entirely about PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. There's uh, loads and loads and loads of stuff that all of us could bring in, but rather than do you know, a little bit of a lot of things, we've each chosen to really focus on one thing. We'll take about 20 minutes each on that. I think the sequence is what I said. Paul's going to go first. Jeff wanted to so I'll be going in the middle. Um, but first, uh, just to mention, we're talking about HIV, but this is what you really need to be scared about. This is the first deer tick of the season that I've seen. It's happening. Yeah, on a patient who was on um, uh, his way into the operating suites to have his lung out, and they just happened to find a tick on him. Well, that's no good. <laughs> Starting early. So we had a good time in Boston. The weather cooperated. We didn't get a major snowstorm, which is great. Uh, they had a session in follow-up to last year on Ebola. I don't think anybody's going to be talking about it, but they are branching out of it. Uh, and I suspect next year they may have a session on Zika virus, which everyone's been hearing a lot about. But I'm going to focus on HIV and uh, First, uh, long-anticipated study that I'm going to uh, share with you uh, is from the big impact study called PROMISE, which is a huge N of 8,000 prevention of uh, mother-to-child transmission study being done both in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, nested within the big PROMISE study uh, was a study of bone mineral density in newborns. Uh, George Syberry presented this, uh, this data two years ago, I believe at Croy, he presented similar data from a US-based consortium uh, uh, study of bone mineral density cross-sectional 
in, in newborns. And at that time, uh, shared with us that there was about a 10% decrease in bone mineral density amongst newborns whose mothers took tenofovir during pregnancy. So this was a cross-sectional study, US-based. And it raised some concerns about using tenofovir uh, in pregnancy. However, the WHO, in their wisdom, uh, decided to recommend Truvada-based uh, treatment for pregnant women globally, and that's become pretty much uh, the standard operating procedure. So now we have some data from a randomized clinical trial, a very large randomized clinical trial, on bone mineral density in, uh, in newborns. Women in this trial were randomized, this is the parent promise trial, they were randomized to one of three treatment options. ZDB monotherapy with single dose nevarapine and a Truvada during the first week postpartum. Uh, and then the other two arms were really treatment arms. Notice that they're Kaletra based, obviously uh, a little bit unusual, but how this study was designed. Paired with either Comavir or Truvada. So this is the real comparison that we're interested in. Does Truvada with its Tenofovir component cause bone mineral density problems when a woman takes it throughout pregnancy. So what happens to the fetus and the newborn uh, is, is what they're after. Women in the PROMISE trial uh, were enrolled at 48 weeks gestation or later. They were naive to antiretrovirals. They had to have a CD4 count of at least 350. And this was a moving target during the conduct of the trial because some countries changed their threshold for treatment during this period of time. So PROMISE had to stay in tune with existing practice, uh, and women were eligible to be enrolled in this trial if they weren't eligible for treatment in their country. Now the overall PROMISE study uh, demonstrated lower transmission in these two arms compared to arm one. Arm one, uh, uh, compared to arm one, uh, but, the, but the two arms, arms two and three, where treatment was used had uh, uh, lower birth weight. Um, I'm not sure what PTD is. Preterm birth. Ah, there we go. Preterm birth with triple ARVs uh, and more early neonatal deaths in arm three. So this is still a bit unexplained and it's a, a subject of continuing uh, investigation. Uh, so lower transmission, as you might imagine, in the treatment arm, but higher complications. <coughs> so here's the sub-study called 1094S. Now this is being done in Africa, and I'll show you some pictures, uh, but anyway. They did whole body DEXA scans and lumbar spine DEXA scans. Uh, they had to be done in, as, during the neonatal period, so that's through the first 28 days of life. Uh, it was done in eight African sites. There were 425 uh, infants who participated for newborns. So when we looked at the baseline statistics, there were three uh, variables that were different across the three treatment arms. Maternal age, in the non-treatment AZT arm, uh, the women were younger, 25 years compared to 27 years in the two, two uh, treatment arm groups. The birth weights of the newborns <coughs> um, were higher 
in the younger women who received AZT compared to uh, the ARM2 and ARM3. And remember, ARM2 and ARM3 has Kalitra, uh, which has been known to cause lower birth weight issues. Uh, weight for length Z-score also was different uh, between these three arms. But the new newborn gestational age and newborn birth length uh, were similar across all three treatment arms. So here's a picture of what's going on in these African sites. They all had the same DEXA machine. They all went through training. All the output and data from these DEXA machines went to a central reading facility. So there was a lot of control on the quality of the data. Uh, we think it's pretty high quality data. This is a whole body DEXA scan with a swaddled infant. Uh, I don't think this is a newborn, but they show gently restraining an older infant undergoing uh, lumbar spine DEXA. So this brought a lot of technological capacity uh, to eight different African sites, which we continue to use going forward. Now here's the uh, lumbar spine polymeral study data. Arm one, arm two, and arm three. Uh, you can see basically across the three, there's no statistically significant difference. Uh, this Kalitra arm with Comavir was a bit lower than the AZT only. Uh, when you looked at Kalitra together with Truvada, it looked very similar to the AZT arm. So this is lumbar spine, which is probably not uh, what we want to concentrate on. <coughs> this is the uh, whole body results. And we do see the two treated groups have significantly lower bone mineral density amongst these newborns compared to uh, the AZTR. Interestingly, when one compares Truvada with Combovir, we're not seeing much of a difference here. So these are the numbers for in the first bullet point for the lumbar spine bone mineral content. Pretty similar across the board. Whole body bone mineral content better in the AZT only. If they got if the mothers got full treatment during pregnancy, didn't matter whether it was with Comavir or Truvada, uh, statistically significantly lower bone mineral content. So in conclusion, as opposed to the previous back study, which was reported two years ago from the United States non-randomized study. In this trial, randomized global study, uh, no adverse infant bone mineral content effect was linked to maternal tenofovir abuse. Very gratifying, very relieving from the perspective of the WHO uh, recommendations where we see Truvada being used very broadly across the world in pregnant women. Uh, no, a, a residual question is the indication of triple ARV Kalitra containing regimens during pregnancy may need may lead to lower bone mineral uh, content. Uh, it may lead to prematurity uh, and other pregnancy complications. And this is an area that's still being investigated quite uh, extensively. Uh, I'll also say that 1084S, the substudy that I've been talking about, is going to be following these infants, and there's going to be a 12-month DEXA. Uh, data point that they'll get on all of these infants. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over time uh, in these three different arms. Uh, so that, that's data that will probably come out in a year or so. So I think that's all I have.
add for this. <clears throat> any questions or so? So, any antiviral therapy then had a, had a negative effect. Full treatment. Full treatment had a negative effect, and, and the postulated mechanism for that. Well, remember this is Kaletra. Right. How much Kaletra do you think pregnant women are taking in general? Probably not a lot. Mm. Um, so it may be something specific to Kaletra and Kaletronica uh, that's part of that regimen. We just don't know. Uh, but certainly in this setting, when you're using AZT prevention versus two, two, two forms of treatment, we are seeing uh, generic lower bone density in the treatment groups. Uh, why? I, I speculated, but I don't know. I don't think the field knows. How significant? But, well, speaking of speculation, you said in 12 months they're going to do follow-up. Uh, what, what's your sense on what the bones are going to look like 12 months from now? You think it's going to improve, or do you think it's going to worsen? My speculation is yeah. that these babies are going to have 12 months with no exposure to any antiretroviral, and they'll probably catch up and they'll look uh, just like the general population. That's my speculation. Okay. In the previous fact study in the United States, it would have been great to see longitudinal study. Uh, we don't have that data, but they did show 10% decrease in Truvada-exposed newborns. What would those newborns look like a year later? They might look a whole lot better because they're not being chronically exposed to Truvada, but we don't know. So we're eagerly looking for these results, but I, I think they're going to show a flattening of uh, a normalization, basically, of, uh, of bones over time. I was say, for non-pediatric mineralogists, is that a significant amount of osteopenia relative to the baseline, or is that not it, much? It is, but again, more importantly, what happens over time uh, is, is great. In our pediatric clinics where we care for HIV-infected kids, they're almost all osteopenia uh, to various degrees. And we're doing a lot of DEXAs and supplementation with calcium and vitamin D, et cetera. And there's actually some studies on hormonal uh, treatment uh, for the most severely affected so it's a big problem in general amongst the HIV-infected crowd. Uh, some of it's HIV, some of it's the drugs we use. Some of it's living in New Hampshire without any sunlight. <laughs> okay? So, integrase inhibitors, dolutegravir, we're seeing a, uh, a lot of excitement and enthusiasm for the use of these drugs for good reasons. And some of them are being used in pregnancy. Uh, not so much globally, but certainly in the U.S. and uh, resource available countries. This is a PK study of dolutegravir done in pregnant women, and it also looked at what was going on as far as wash through in, their, in the babies. Um, so this was uh, <laughs> out of the IMAC network. Uh, the area under the curve in uh, extensive PK studies, these are 12-hour PK studies, uh, was 30% lower, and the 24-hour trough is 40% lower in pregnancy uh, compared to uh, normative data. Uh, and they had two types of comparatives. One was looking at uh, drug levels postpartum in these women. Another was looking at historical there aren't huge numbers in this study. I think there were about a dozen. Uh, but they did show uh, area under the curve, 
in the second and third trimester, which was substantially lower uh, than these women uh, two months uh, postpartum. <coughs> Same thing with uh, peaks and troughs. Uh, Half-lives were different. So this is a theme that's pretty common with most of our antiretrovirals in pregnancy. Uh, dosing is always suspect, and specific studies need to be done uh, in pregnant women to generate uh, appropriate dosing and a comfort level with the dose. Is this problematic? Well, I think that second bullet point is, is encouraging in that all the women had undetectable uh, virus at delivery and undetectable virus through a lot of their pregnancy. So the antiviral effect seems to be pretty good. But there is some concern about potential for low, uh, low levels during pregnancy. And what's going to happen on a population basis is still a little uncertain. Now, again, a fairly familiar theme. As one goes down in age in pediatrics, you get uh, a much more rapid clearance uh, of an antiretroviral or drugs in general. So the elimination half-life in these newborns was more than double that in adults. Uh, all nine infants were that had studies done were uninfected. Uh, four infants had hypoglycemia. There were a number of birth defects. I'm not sure these are more than uh, expected, but uh, certainly a uh, complications registry for women taking new drugs like valutegravir is out there and is trying to track whether there are uh, accelerated adverse events. These are the actual numbers for peaks uh, and, and the half-life uh, for the babies, and you can see a graph of the um, concentrations uh, in the new Some uh, speculation, if you will. There's an enzyme UGT181, which is act activity is increased uh, by progesterone levels and increased in pregnancy. CYP3A4 is another enzyme, which has also been observed during pregnancy uh, to be induced. Uh, and it can result in lower concentrations of some substrates like previous Dalyrtegravir is metabolized primarily by a UGT enzyme with some contri contribution by CYP3A4. So there's at least theoretical reasons uh, to believe that we're going to have al altered PK and a need for altered dosing with dalyrtegravir in pregnancy. And again, uh, very rapid uh, elimination in infants, which is uh, going <coughs> to cause us to need to, if we're going to use this drug in infants, we're going to have to do careful PK studies. So I think that's all I wanted to say. Questions? Are we using much dietary in pregnant women? Do you know? Pregnant women? People have been. And I, I, my personal opinion, after seeing this data, was we shouldn't be. I mean, I think. We should be a little cautious. Mm -hmm. But some women are probably on dietary and becoming pregnant. That's right. That issue, too. It's certainly not being used much at all in uh, resource-limited settings uh, yet. But um, the WHO is moving towards featuring value tiger beer in its adult population, and they'll probably want to harmonize that into uh, <coughs> pregnancy. Uh, so we need better data. Yeah. The, the other med that 
I've made a note about that we, we do use is boosted gerunivir, and there was another abstract about even BID boosted right. gerunivir at standard dosing um, does not look. So more rapid clearance, more uh, yeah. more higher levels of metabolism, yeah. uh, the familiar theme. Uh, so absolutely. Um, did the abstract recommend altered dosing of gerunivir? Well, they tried treatments? to use, uh, rather than 600, 100 BIDs, or 600 with 100 of ritonavir BID, they tried to use 800 with 100 BID, and even that, and that did not good. provide adequate dosing in the third trimesters. Did it uh, have correlated uh, viral response data? I don't remember. I can pull it up as we're talking here. Because there's a big buffer. And with you know, with yeah. adult dosing, you know, it's really overkill a lot of times. We may get away with lower levels, but this is a dangerous situation to be getting away with something because mm -hmm. the transmission is the issue here. Anyway, uh, so there is a challenge for caring for pregnant women, especially if we're going to be using newer drugs where we have limited data because there, there may, be, may be some concerns. And then there's always the issue of infant outcome, whether it's uh, low birth weight, <coughs> premature delivery, uh, anomalies, all sorts of things uh, that we have to keep, uh, keep an eye out for. Thanks. Yeah, for, for those who don't track um, antiretroviral therapy closely, as um, Paul was alluding to, uh, integrase inhibitors now are um, recommend, the recommended first-line therapy um, for people without uh, resistance or contraindications. So, um, the large majority of people getting started on first line therapy these days are getting started on integrase um, based regimens rather than protease or non nucleoside. So, um, so, we are going to be seeing pregnant women um, on volutegravir and the other integrases um, pretty quickly. So, it would be great to have that data accumulating. Oops, that's Right. So, as mentioned, I'm going to focus on um, <clears throat> I don't know why we're suddenly getting this new version of um, uh, PowerPoint. It's mine's. I, I thought Paul had something yeah, yeah. funky, and <laughs> I, I, they must have updated PowerPoint on my screen. It's totally different than I've ever seen it before, but it's functional. Um, so I'm going to talk about PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis for people in the room who don't track this. Um, pre-exposure prophylaxis is the administration of antiretrovirals to people who do not have HIV infection but who are at risk of becoming HIV infected through sexual or injected drug users. Um, and over the last uh, several years, um, <clears throat> we've transitioned to thinking that this might be an important, well, might be, but is an important route to trying to impact on the epidemic uh, and reduce <clears throat> new infections. So it's, it's really taking on a life almost of its own. Um, the only, for again, background for people who don't know, don't track this, the only, um, Approved and really the only, I think, could be utilized person at this point uh, for PrEP is the combination of co-formulation of tenofovir and antipsychotic tenofovir DF. <coughs> um, 
talk about Zirko um, formulated as Truvada. So, um, just a few preliminary slides before PrEP, just uh, in the context of PrEP to em emphasize the potential import for the number of people in the U.S. who are at risk of becoming HIV infected and therefore could potentially benefit from PrEP. So this is a, um, I'm going to show, I think, four slides from two CDC presentations um, that are available. This one got, or the second one, no, this one actually got a fair bit of press, um, uh, reasonably. So this is looking at the lifetime risk of HIV diagnosis by transmission group. So just estimating, um, uh, based on modeling, uh, entire lifetime risk of an individual who is a man who has sex with men or other risk factors there of getting HIV infected before they die. And um, the numbers are, um, to a degree, startling. So estimates are that in the U.S., one out of six men who have sex with men, so people coming into adultery to have sex with men, um, by the time they die, um, one out of six will have been infected with HIV. That's really a pretty astounding number. Uh, women who inject drugs, one in 23, and you can see on down, um, heterosexual women, one in 241, heterosexual men, one in 473. Uh, most striking, or even more striking though, is when you look at, uh, amongst those risk categories, um, different demographic groups. So for African-American men who have sex with men, lifetime risk, 50%. Why? Shocking. So 50% of um, gay men in the U.S., by the time they die, if we don't impact on the dynamics of the epidemic and risks of infection, will be infected. Uh, Hispanic, one in four. White, one in 11. And then by race, ethnicity, um, for all African-American men, so um, without defined risk behavior, uh, 5%. So 5% of all uh, black men in the U.S. estimated will be infected with HIV before they die if we don't do something about the epidemic. And you can see the numbers running on down. Uh, so again, we, I think, sort of, Think about it as a fairly stable epidemic. Um, you know, transmission is percolating along at a relatively low rate, but the lifetime impact on at-risk populations, uh, once you accumulate the ongoing risk, is pretty astounding. So, what's our potential to impact on um, transmission through two types of intervention: the addition of PrEP and, or the dissemination of PrEP, and improved um, linkage into care for people diagnosed with HIV and effective antiretroviral therapy. So this is looking at four scenarios uh, modulating those two things. So scenario one, uh, we do nothing differently. Um, so we continue to link people to care after diagnosis with HIV and treat them as they are, meaning we do a pretty lousy job, and we don't bother disseminate our estimates are that in the five-year period, 2015 to 20, there will be 265,000 new HIV infections. Okay, so we don't do anything different in the next five years, um, or the next four years, starting 2015, 
260-odd thousand infections. Uh, if we don't do any better with linkage to care and antiviral therapy, but we try to broadly introduce PrEP, and broadly introducing PrEP um, uh, in this modeling, they're saying we're going to get PrEP to 40% of at-risk men who have sex with men, 10% of people with injected drug use, and 10% uh, of heterosexual. So it's not assuming we get this to everyone. It's just doing pretty good. Uh, and remember, this uh, estimates of those who potentially could benefit from PrEP in the U.S. is over a million people. It's a lot of people out there who we estimate um, would meet um, uh, criteria for uh, benefiting from PrEP. So if we do that, sort of modestly expand PrEP, but don't do anything with people in care, we uh, prevent about 48,000 infections. So that's, you know, we push on PrEP, we do pretty well, and we have a meaningful impact. So that's what, about a fifth, sixth of all the cases of HIV uh, would be averted. If we do that with PrEP um, and get better about linkage and antiviral therapy, so 85% of people diagnosed and linked to care and 60% suppressed. So that linkage to care is pretty good, 85% we can get there. 60% viral suppression, mediocre, but a lot better than we're doing nationally. That alone would prevent 89,000 infections. And of course, if you're preventing those, perhaps a little less effective, there's fewer people to be infected. Um, so in that case, prevents 32. But that's preventing those two interventions, about half of all estimated infections. So that would be a pretty good impact. Um, the last scenario, 85% of people linked to care, 80% of those suppressed virus. So that's, that's a good target. Um, you know, that would be uh, fairly impressive. And we can get to those numbers. There are program states where they're hitting 80 to 90%, um, including the measure of those linked to care that we don't do as well linking to care. Uh, in that case, we're preventing uh, close to 200,000 infections, the relative contribution of PrEP is getting smaller, again, as we prevent more infections than antiviral therapy. So, to, again, just interesting to think about sort of the numbers that we potentially could, um, uh, number of infections we could potentially prevent using PrEP in the coming four years, depending on how well we do with um, treating uh, an important point there is that as we get better, the potential value and the cost-benefit of PrEP is going to go down. Uh, in the current world, the potential is pretty significant. People good with those? All right. So, with so that who's going to do all that work, <coughs> medical work? <laughs> you and me. <laughs> Uh, you're referring to the prep work, or the, yeah, I mean, who's going to, I mean, we can touch on that. I'm not going to spend much time about implementation, but how to actually implement dissemination of prep um, uh, is a challenging question. How to get people educated, trained, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> was, there, was there any discussion about STD uh, um, in prevalence in, 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 in that setting? Well, there was no discussion in these presentations that I mentioned. Those were just modeling, of course, of numbers. Um, I will touch on 
uh, briefly on STDs sort of at the very end, because um, it's certainly an important topic. All right, so getting into um, some of the studies presented around uh, PrEP. So um, as mentioned, uh, there are only currently um, FDA-approved therapy for PrEP is the co-formulation of Tenofovir uh, disoproxyl fumarate, TDF, which is the current formulation we've had available for all these many years uh, with M-tricyclines, if you got it. Um, we, in treating people with HIV, have been like all excited to potentially be getting something better with the tenofovir alafenamide path. And for people, again, who don't follow this, the benefit is not in efficacy, but in reducing some toxicity. Um, the drug is administered at a much lower dose than is TDF and is concentrated in CD4 cells, so there's less drug to deliver to other sites where you potentially will have adverse consequences, most significantly kidneys, potentially bone, who knows what else. So in treatments, the um, sort of the ball is rolling towards TAF. Um, and uh, there's a study from Gandhi um, that demonstrated in people on TDF as part of their PREP treatment in this IPREX OLE. OLE is an open label extension. So it's after completing the randomized trial, people were continued on PREP uh, with Kubata, open label. And people at higher levels of um, uh, TDF experienced decline in kidney function, worsening in kidney function. So not surprising, the issue we see in people with HIV, we see in people without HIV who are on Truvada. So again, raises, wouldn't it be nice to not give them that and be able to shift the path? So can we do that? Uh, so one study I think raised really significant concerns about our potential to do that. Remember, the drugs distributed very differently than is um, TDF. So this was a study looking at eight women. Um, I don't know how much they got paid, but um, uh, a single-dose study of either TDF or TAF, and then underwent sampling of serum for drug concentrations, and also tissue biopsies, including rectal, two rectal, I believe it was, two um, cervical, two vaginal biopsies and looking for concentrations of tenofovir and tenofovir um, diphosphate, so active drug, uh, at these sites. And the bottom line is that in the biopsy specimens, uh, there was much lower drug level of the active drugs, tenofovir and diphosphate. Uh, and in fact, in uh, the drug was the diphosphate, the active form, was detectable in only two vaginal and cervical and four rectal. So in the majority of biopsy specimens, which you think is where you want drug, they couldn't find any drug. So how can it work if there's no drug present? Uh, having said that, we don't know um, how to know for beer reduces risk of acquisition of HIV. We don't know where you actually need drug, what cells you need it in, so it's not like this immediately translates into it doesn't work or won't work, but it certainly raises concern that uh, um, it may not work and we have to be really attentive to this. But then a study using TAF and um, 
FTC in macaques was very effective at preventing infection of macaques with uh, an HIV-like with SHIV uh, virus. Uh, so in six macaques who received the drug at doses that should get drug levels comparable to in human dosing, um, all of the animals were protected, while in the controls who uh, got placebo, all of them became infected. So it actually looks in a macaque model like it might work, even if there's no detectable drug in the tissue where uh, the exposure is. So, do they do pharmacokinetics in the macaques? Sorry? Do they do pharmacokinetics in the macaques? Uh, yeah, um, sure they would have beforehand, sure, to try to determine appropriate okay. doses. I wanted to be sure that, you know, the drug was there. Right, yep, absolutely. So, so where, where we go from here is we go very carefully down the road to the road of looking to see if TAF can be used for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, <clears throat> Other drugs, people are looking at other drugs for PrEP. Um, a presentation on Maraviroc, uh, four arms, Maraviroc alone versus with FTC versus with Tenofovir versus Tenofovir FTC. Uh, primarily a safety tolerability study, but 406 men were enrolled. And these were individuals um, uh, at high risk of HIV acquisition. And the drugs were well tolerated, and the conclusion of the presenter was that uh, Maraviroc regimens may be alternatives for oral prep. I thought it was kind of disingenuous because there were actually five seroconversions in this study, and all five were on Maraviroc, one of the Maraviroc arms. Two of the five there was no detectable Maraviroc when tested, so adherence would be a problem. Two of the other were these there was low level. Uh, it's a therapeutic Maraviroc. On the other hand, all five were in the Maraviroc. So, uh, moving forward, yeah, but um, unclear, I think, uh, whether there's much potential here. Uh, how about cabotegravir, long-acting injection? So, cabotegravir is a dolutegravir-like uh, integrase inhibitor. Uh, that's available both orally and as a long-acting injection, being studied in different contexts every eight weeks, every 12 weeks. So one injection, good for two months or three months. Um, so this is a, a randomized blinded trial comparing um, initially, randomized five to one, initially people put on oral cabotegravir versus placebo for a month. And then after that, going into the injections administered every three months, three cycles. Uh, over 100 people enrolled, again, primarily a safety study, and well tolerated. There was a fair frequency of injection site reaction. So it wasn't pleasant getting these things. You got bumps, pain. But again, it's only every 12 weeks. And on questionnaires about uh, uh, preference, uh, uh, preference of oral versus this, um, there was a high um, rate of people preferring the injections rather than taking the oral despite the injection site reactions. Uh, there were two seroconversions, one in the placebo, one in um, 
treatment, but the treatment was at week 53, long after washout of the drug. Patients were just being followed at that point. Um, so they're going forward with this, um, uh, studying it for pre-exposure prophylaxis. They're going forward, though, with every eight week rather than every 12 week uh, regimen, because the PK ended up being very different, than, significantly different than expected, uh, and drug was cleared quicker than uh, anticipated. But still, the possibility of having an every two month injectable um, as a uh, pre exposure prophylaxis agent um, becomes pretty attractive if it works. All right, and uh, if it works, uh, another study in macaques work great. So uh, in monkey models, this really seem, does look to be a good option for us for moving forward. Not going to go through the study in detail. Uh, just two more studies that are uh, very similar. Uh, and these got a lot of, also got a lot of press and a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, did people heard about these, these vaginal ring studies? Yeah, no, yes, no. So dalpivirine is a non-nucleoside. This is, that I know of, the only setting in which it's being studied at, at this time. Uh, and so it's in a vaginal ring that's administered or replaced once a month, and there's uh, slow leaching out of the drug. And um, so studied in... Uh, there are two studies, this and I'll show you the next one, both done in Africa, the second one primarily South Africa, uh, this in uh, a number of countries. And um, compared to placebo and of course counseling, etc., cetera, uh, it was actually a successful study. So there was, um, in the dalpivirine ring arm, 27% reduction of HIV-1 infection to the placebo arm. 27% doesn't sound so good, it's positive, not so good. Um, uh, but there was a huge impact of age on the efficacy of the ring, such that in women over 21, um, there was a 50, was it 56%? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 56% reduction. And they cut it a number of different ways in the presentation. And so looking at um, over 21 and most highly adherent based on a number of markers, they were up at about a 60% reduction. So getting to a two-thirds reduction in HIV acquisition. So that's sounding meaningful. And it, their take was on the age was it was primarily a marker of adherence to therapy. Uh, and the second study found more or less the same thing again at a different site. So, Yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, I thought there was actually 
Mary Margaret, you the presentation? Mm -hmm. It was actually a standing ovation, sort of partial standing ovation for it. But I, I agree. It's, yeah. you know, compared to other interventions that are possible, this isn't that impressive. It's um, not. It's not. And what worries me is that the seal continues thinking that it's adherence. And I was thinking about the first study that you showed, that with a women, dog women, I'm pretty sure they have taken the drug and they don't find the drug in the tissues. So I think that it's time to move forward and thinking, you know, I start thinking outside the box because I'm not so sure it's adherence anymore. But they, I, I think they know there was an adherence problem for the young women here yes. uh, based on other measures. So adherence is clearly part of it. But if the, the best you can do is 60%, yes. um, that doesn't give a lot of room for error. Um, and, and certainly, you know, compared to treatment as prevention, that's 100%. For PrEP, um, orally, which if you do it all the time, approaches 100%. You know, it's, um, it, it seems like this is a hint of something that people might be able to pursue in the future to do better, because it is the first time that they that there's been demonstration of a long-acting um, mm -hmm. uh, suppository type uh, therapy that works. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah. I don't know if you know, but why did they use dafibrin and not tenofibrin, which has shown? No clue. <laughs> because then finally we could compare the mucosal application to the vaginal ring, and that would have been a very valuable information to get, but right. now they use a different drug, you cannot compare it to, to yeah. for instance, to... Um, sure, well, when I say I have no clue, I think studies. we probably have a clue. You know, the company that makes the pivot wanted to trial the drug. That's why it was done. You know, it's not always rational decision-making. It's mm -hmm. the optimal choice of agents, but driven by... Uh, so that's most of what I'm going to say about PrEP. Um, there were uh, a number of presentations that raise concerns about some of the downsides of PrEP. There was this one study on a patient who was, uh, it's an incredibly detailed um, analysis of the use of PrEP in one patient and sort of demonstrates this patient never missed doses of PrEP and failed with a high level of resistant, with, with resistant virus to a whole bunch of meds. But being reminded that you can be 100% adherence and can still fail and failure can lead to infection with that virus. Uh, and then there were also a couple presentations on uh, potential change behavior and higher risk behavior in people on PrEP looking at STIs. Um, and they demonstrated that, yeah, in fact, we've seen this before. There was a higher risk of uh, risky sexual behavior and other sexually transmitted things. So there clearly is uh, potential downsides to there was also a study from Holland looking at, I think it was Holland, looking at cost-effectiveness of PrEP. And they could only get it to be cost-effective if um, people, if an intermittent rather than a daily regimen got validated. Uh, it just ended up being uh, cost-ineffective with our current, uh, current dosing. So Brian, in that last case, um, are they assuming, are they suggesting that the donor had a resistant virus that was transmitted, or? They actually don't say, but obviously that's one of the two possibilities. Because um, why the patient would end up with integrase-resistant virus taking Truvada? But I guess the real question is the NRTI 
resistance did that emerge because he got infected and kept taking his Truvada and didn't get tested for a few months? Or? No, he, he got tested very quickly after infection. So it's probably um, transmission of resistance. I think the presumption is transmission of resistance, yeah. All right, Jeff, have you used this before? Or were you actually these weren't working separately? Okay, I'm there. So, uh, without any uh, real concerted planning, um, what I'm going to talk about it touches on the issues brought up by both Paul and Brian. Paul talked about bone mineral density, and Brian talked about PrEP, and I'm going to talk about bone mineral density in adults and in PrEP. So, um, just uh, why did I become interested in this? I became interested a couple of years ago in bone density uh, when I had a a 55-year-old, now 55, then 52-year-old man who was uh, skating and slipped on the ice and broke his wrist. And I did a uh, DEXA scan on him and he had a lumbar T-score of minus 2.2, which is osteopenia. And then in the same week, a 52-year-old, now Xandy was 49-year-old, came in and slipped on the ice at his house, caught himself with his hand and broke his radius, and I did a DEXA scan on him, and he had a T-score of minus 2.5, which is osteoporosis. Aside from HIV, neither one of them has risk factors for osteoporosis. Neither one's a smoker. They both have normal levels of testosterone, etc. So I, I think uh, this became something that I wanted to pay more attention to. So I only have a few minutes, and I'm just going to do a few slides. Um, we do I, have the room yeah. until um, 2 o'clock. So people who need to leave, okay. but otherwise we're not rushing. Okay. I'm still only going to show you slides. Um, <laughs> I only have a few slides. The, uh, the, uh, all right, so one thing I went to, this was a, a symposium I went to, uh, and I took notes as best I could of the uh, Euro-CETA, maybe it's pronounced study, which is 12,000 patients, um, and looked at risk of fractures in people with HIV. They also did something on osteonecrosis. I'm not going to show you that today. But they looked at 12,000 patients, mostly white men, who were mostly virologically suppressed. So this isn't a study of people with active HIV infection. These are suppressed patients with a median CD4 count of 440. Okay, and they saw they saw 496 patients over this period of time. I don't remember what it was. Had 618 fractures, and of the ones with fractures, a quarter of them or so had osteoporosis. Okay. And they did all sorts of studies looking at uh, risk factors, and they came up with this list, which I think is worth some of them anyway remembering. We can't do anything about the race of the person we're seeing, but other things. Lower baseline CD4 count, recent diagnosis of ASCVD, I'm not quite sure why. Uh, low BMI, which is in non-HIV patients also a risk factor for um, osteoporosis. History of injecting drug use, increased age, sense. HCV co-infection, which I hadn't seen before. History of osteonecrosis, which I'm not sure makes a lot of sense. Prior fracture, which does. And also a history of non-AIDS cancer. And they, 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 was really, they didn't really, I, I, this was a symposium talk, so I didn't get a good multivariate analysis of this, but these were all risk factors. Um, interesting, they didn't see an effect of vitamin D status on the risk of fracture. We think that it is, but they didn't see it in this study. Now, looking at antivirals, they saw that um, tenofovir was associated with an increased risk. And the, it was double the risk of fracture 
if a patient ever took tenofovir. And the risk, uh, the increased risk was cumulative, although in the multivariate analysis, that didn't come, come out to be quite this is a significant cumulative risk. But if you ever took tenofovir, your risk was greater. Now, this is a retrospective study, or cohort study, it's not a controlled study. And the biggest increase in the risk was in the first year of tenofovir use. We've seen this in many prior studies, where if you look at bone density, that tenofovir causes a sizable decrease in bone uh, density in the first year, and then it kind of parallels age-related loss after that. Okay, so with that in mind, I saw, I went to, a, I thought it was a provocative talk, uh, again, a, this a, a speaker writing notes, where they decided to try to treat bone loss, to anticipate bone loss by treating with zoledronic acid, which is a biphosphonate. It goes in the brain and reclassed. I have one or two patients who are on reclassed. And the interesting thing about this drug is it's given as an injection once a year, okay, as opposed to Fosamax, in other words, is about once a week, I guess, and some of the others. So it's a once a year injection. I'm sure it's expensive, but that's pretty convenient. So um, this particular speaker said that two-thirds of patients with HIV have osteopenia, 15% of osteoporosis, and there's a two to nine-fold higher fracture rate in aging population as you go. Okay. So loss of bone is seen mostly during the first year of antiviral therapy, regardless of the regimen. So I asked uh, Paul about even in the patients who are not getting uh, children whose mothers got something other than tenofovir, there's still lower bone density. And the speculation there is that it's immune-mediated in some way that I didn't put this on here, but that there's some increased osteoclast activity as part of an immune response, enhanced immune response, so that any time you put anybody with HIV on their first antiviral regimen, apparently there's a decrease in bone density. So this was a blinded, randomized study of 63 patients, very enterprising. These are patients who didn't have osteoporosis, who were viremic, who were antiviral naive, and started on therapy with tenofovir and pacitabine and boosted adazanavir. And at the beginning of treatment, the patients received either an injection of placebo or a single injection of reclast. And then they measured a whole bunch of things, including bone density by DEXA scan, but also something called C-terminal telopeptide or collagen, CTX, which I wasn't familiar with, which is apparently a very sensitive marker of bone resorption. And, oops, and result. Um, so treatment with reclastic was associated with a 74% reduction in bone resorption by that marker, that CTX, and that lasted out to 56%, which is a sizable decrease at 48 weeks. There was also, if you look at things we're looking at more of uh, bone mineral density, there was an 8% increase in lumbar spine bone mineral density versus the placebo group. And actually, that time went up to 11% at later time points. And actually, at one year, treatment reclass actually brought about an absolute increase in, in lumbar spine density versus the decrease that was seen in the placebo group. And there were also significant trends seen, I don't know what that means, but trends seen in hip and femoral neck. And Treating with reclass had no differences in viral load or CD4 or major adverse events. Is this something we're going to do? I don't really think so. I don't know that we give everybody we start 
But maybe what we would do is if someone already has osteopenia or osteoporosis and we're about to start on antiviral therapy, maybe we should do this. I think a more careful cost analysis would have to be done of this um, and, a, and in a bigger study. Um, and we're probably not going to be using, I don't know, we're not going to be using as much tenofovir in the old form as we will in the future, so maybe this will become less important. But I thought it was a really interesting idea to give people a dose of preplastic, maybe just one dose at the beginning of therapy. All right, so Brian talked about PrEP, and uh, I think if I remember you talked about renal insufficiency, but I don't know if you've mentioned that PrEP also causes decrease in bone density. The good news is it gets better. Uh, PrEP with Truvada let, leads to a 1% decrease in bone mineral density. These are usually young people. Bone density is often increasing still at this age. So in a study, they measured bone density in MSM every 24 weeks during PrEP, and then there was a period off of PrEP, and then they re there was this open-label extension. So they compared, everyone was getting PrEP, but they compared subjects who had tenofovir levels that showed they were taking the drug with people who had tenofovir levels in the blood that showed they weren't taking more than a few pills. And um, it, in the people who were adherent, it's not really placebo group, in the people who were adherent, there was a decrease in bone density of 1%, but the good news sort of is when they stopped taking Truvada, uh, they caught up again. So in this young age, uh, again, PrEP causes decreased bone density, but it seemed to be reversible. Okay, and one other topic. So, so I think that's an interesting, um, uh, people are talking about uh, more careful administration of vitamin D and calcium to everybody. I don't know if other people are doing that to everybody or not, but it is something I try to attend to. It's probably not that cost effective to measure vitamin D levels. I don't know how much that costs. It's easier just to have people take vitamin D, either as part of a multivitamin or um, um, vitamin D supplement. And calcium intake should also be something we discuss along with other general health measures in our patients. Okay, I, I uh, keep up sort of uh, la second and last thing I want to talk about is this idea of using certain drugs um, that have high levels in the central nervous system in order to prevent neurocognitive or uh, neurologic consequences of HIV infection. And there's been a fair amount of stuff on this and it's, in my opinion, it's pretty inconclusive. We still pick our drugs mainly based upon their efficacy for viral load, and since everything's effective for viral load, on their side effect uh, profile. So I went to a couple lectures about neurologic disorders. CNS is known to be a reservoir for HIV. Uh, people with an undetectable viral load in the um, blood can often have detectable virus in the spinal fluid. And the significance of this is not entirely clear, but it's probably not a good thing. And uh, not only does it get there, but there also seems to be some active process by which HIV gets into CNS, probably within CD4 cells. So example, for um, example, if you have a high CD4 count um, and positive blood viral load, you're going to have more HIV in the spinal fluid than if you have a low CD4 count because the CD4 cells seem to be carrying the virus in the spinal fluid. Okay, so an observation is that um, 
Pleocytosis, low-grade pleocytosis, uh, white cells in the spinal fluid is pretty common in people with HIV, um, not in, in healthy adults. Um, 15 to 30% of people with early HIV have white cells in the spinal fluid, and um, even and especially high if the CD4 count is lower, and even people who have undetectable viral loads in the blood um, can have some cells in the spinal fluid, suggesting inflammation. So there are multiple markers of CNS inflammation. There are tau proteins, uh, something AB42, I don't know what that is, an Alzheimer's marker. And then the speaker spoke about something called neurofilament-like protein, which apparently is pretty sensitive. So um, the, the seminar I went to uh, reviewed uh, some studies, said there's still no consensus on the importance of CNS penetration. Um, the CPE score, which is the CNS penetration effectiveness score. We know that some drugs get in well, and others don't. AZT classically does. Efavirenz, I believe, does not. So we know that a better CPE score, better drugs, is associated with a lower CNS viral load, but it's not really clear that there would be better, that there's better neurologic function as a consequence of that. <coughs> um, the speaker has spoken about four randomized studies to date. One of them showed no difference between high CPE and low CPE scores. One showed slightly better. One didn't show any better, but said if people got efavirenz, they could get worse. And another one showed a trend toward better function with good CPE scores. So really inconclusive. The speaker said it was of marginal benefit at all, too many variables and, and uh, too complicated. But I did go to one abstract where they looked at HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders, so-called HAND. Um, this was a, a, something called the Neuro3 study, an open-label study of 31 patients. So they used lots of screening tools, um, and they divided HAND into three levels, asymptomatic neuro, well, neurologic disease into three levels, asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment, mild neurocognitive impairment, and actual HIV-associated dementia using all sorts of criteria. They did tons of lab tests, spinal fluid MRIs, and then they changed antiviral therapy to new combinations with enhanced CPE scores. So they went from a mean CPE score of 6 to 10. The way this works is each drug has a score of 1 through 4, I think, about how well it gets into the spinal fluid. So they did this, and at 48 weeks, their conclusion was that antiretroviral intensification with a better CPE score was associated with significant improvement in standard neuropsychiatric tests. It was an abstract. Jeff, did they talk about CSF uh, results? Uh, various studies did. Um, in this one, they didn't, did they? Um, I know the answer here, actually. Because uh, this one, they had an intervention that you know, we need to see. If, uh, um, they, uh, I don't think they, they said they did a lot of measuring, but it's a very hard abstract to read. Um, I, I don't think they did. Based on characteristics, classification, cognitive. No, the, the, the outcome they did here was, um, was in neurocognitive testing. Okay. But I think other studies uh, that neuro filament-like protein, I think they have shown improvement with that. What's your impression of the data to date, or Brian, or Merrimark, anybody? Just, just like the, <coughs> the first speaker, you 
yeah. know, marginal benefit or difficult to ascertain benefit. Yeah. I, I have a different take. I think every year the data that's presented is increasingly convincing that this is an issue and, and it's one we're going to pay a lot of attention to now that a lot of our regimens don't include a lot of CNS active drugs. So I think the data is pretty convincing that there is a subgroup of people and that's part of the problem. We don't know which group of people that is who have active replication in the CNS and we only find out about it when they present with a dementing illness and get the studies and get their HIV meds changed, get the actual you know, specialty diagnostics to determine that as has been shown in case reports in the literature. So I think it is real, it does happen and we maybe are just at sort of the tip of the iceberg type of situation here where we need more data, need better understanding um, about how to evaluate the drugs in the, in the CSF, but there was a lot of lot of convincing uh, data presented, I thought. Um, you know, one of the, I think the strongest rationale for uh, treating everyone with HIV infection with antiviral therapy is to prevent um, hand. And that in itself may be all we really need to do is just treat everybody early. Um, I think this is a I think this is a major frontier. I agree with you that this is a major frontier that, that uh, we have to address. Suresh and I had a patient last year who had neurocognitive impairment with undetectable viral load, and we tried we switched to a high CPE, so really high CPE score regimen. Unfortunately, couldn't tolerate it. Said, forget it. Put me back on what I was on. So, yeah, I think most people agree with Mary Margaret that there's a big problem out there. There's a concerning problem, but what to do with it remains, as you're suggesting, totally unclear. I have a patient I'm following with blue eye who developed a funny neurocognitive thing, and um, he had a mild pleocytosis when we tapped him, and we've been trying to get him into Boston um, to um, folks at MGH who have a CSF PCR and resistance uh, assay just to see if he's got virus in his CSF to try to get a better sense. And, you know, we've been trying to do that for the last nine months or something. So, you know, even getting data that might be pertinent to help drive the change is just, you know, it's not readily available. I should add on the patient that's I have, we did an LP on him and sent spinal fluid for HIV viral load and was negative. Where do you send it? To our so that, you got the lab to run it on CSF? Yeah. Really? It was a demo. I think it was a send out. Oh, or send out. Yeah, because there's no commercial lab that will know it. It's only research. I understand. I'll check that. Yeah, would you? Would, um, yes, let me check. So, how is Triamec? So so. It's what I will use all the time now. I haven't memorized the CPE scores. I don't think we're really going with it yet. Fabrin's not good. Fabrin's not good. AZT's good. We don't use either one very much anymore. My recollection is that Fabrin's is pretty good, actually. Um, I could pull up the table I have. The the, there's a little bit of difference for the uh, integrase. 
one drug to the other, is my recollection. So, yeah. but we can send the information around after. I can't remember the exact number. Ephemerins is, is decent. The problem is that in the clinical trials, people do worse on neurocognitive markers when they're put on ephemerins because of all of its side effects. Yeah. Which is a reflection of it getting in, into right. the CSF. Yeah. Neverapine actually has a good score. Yeah. I think the real problem is we don't understand the pathology that's going on there. Is it direct viral replication? Is it inflammation? Is it immune And it's a very difficult compartment to, to sample and to study. Right, and to send out the CSF. You say you did it? Yes. Quest lab, quest in California. Okay. All right. Uh, any questions for you? So, you know, we didn't talk anything as ever about opportunistic infections and antiretroviral therapy for people with HIV. You know, it's, there's so little of that. There's a lot of TB work, etc., from. Um, uh, resource limited settings, but in the U.S. there's just very little in the way of OI and antiviral development, there's long-acting agents that people are looking at, there's new classes of drugs, but there's sort of nothing that is overly exciting. The long-acting dolutegravir and, um, uh, is, is probably the most interesting of, uh, of these newer agents. Fred, are we going to follow up on uh, one of the Tuesday mornings? With the more Yes, tenofovir uh, is a one, ephavirin is a three, lamivudine is a two, so adazanib is not good How does TAP look? Does that have TAP in there? Does that have what? Does that have TAP in there? No, not, not in the one I like. Thank you.